Good afternoon. It is Friday, March 18th, and this is Chicky Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. And it is my pleasure to interview uh, once again uh, Sarah Caldecott-Miller. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great. And, Sarah, we had uh, talked actually I think right around when your your book first uh, was published. And I was so in. I was so intrigued because my daughter at the time, I think she was in uh, fifth grade, and she was studying inventors. And and so I just, I had so much fun telling her, you know, that I was uh, interviewing somebody who had a long line of in- inventors in their family. So why don't you just dig in and tell us a, a little bit about yourself right now and, and what you do and, uh, and then take us back into your family, because you, you have got just an amazing legacy. Well, thank you. It's certainly been an interesting thing for me to research and to look into. I am a great-grandniece of Thomas Edison and have a generation, several generations of inventors going back in my family, all the way to my great-great-grandfather. So five generations back we can trace inventors in every single generation, which is really amazing and and just so interesting as we look at the world today and and how innovation has shaped our world. Um, Most of what I do is focused around the work of Thomas Edison. I learned that I was related to Edison when I was about eight years old. And we moved into a new house, and my little sister was born, so there were three kids, needed more space, and my parents gave me an Edison phonograph. So when I moved into my room, here was this beautiful piece of, of really, of furniture. Um, Many of you have probably seen these old Edison phonographs. They have uh, a wooden base with the word Edison on and scrolly letters, and then a big brass horn, which is the amplifier. So these types of phonographs play cylindrical records. So along with the phonograph came six or seven sleeves of cylindrical records, which I loved to play. And when I was looking at this phonograph, it set up the question to me, why does this phonograph look so different from the plastic and metal rectangular phonograph that I have, which plays small flat records? So I'm sort of dating myself here, but I grew up era of 45s and LPs. Uh, you're in good so, company, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so it really set up the question of how do things change? Why do people make the choices that they do for the products that they buy? What are the forces that influence technologies to shift over time? So I have spent several years working at Rutgers University researching the life of Thomas Edison, And because of the family's relationship, I was able to get into the archives and do some studying of Edison's notebooks, personal correspondence, business correspondence, as well as other documents. So I'm I'm very keen to understand how we can today use the world-changing methods that Edison was using over and over again to be so successful, really trying to identify what was timeless about his approach. So my great-great-grandfather was an inventor of agricultural equipment. He has many inventions in the Smithsonian Institution, and he's uh, an inductee in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. 
So uh, it was the next generation when one of his 11 children, uh, the seventh child, Mina, married Thomas Edison. And so Mina is really the link to Thomas Edison's heritage and legacy. So uh, the relationship is one of marriage and uh, really has been fascinating to study. So that's a bit about the family history. Um, I think one of the most interesting things I've learned over the course of my research is that a lot of what we understand about Edison comes through the eyes of the historian and not through the lens of business. I spent almost 15 years in corporate life, in product development and brand development at the Quaker Oats Company and also at Helene Curtis, which is now owned by Unilever. So I, I learned a lot about the dynamics of what it takes to start with an idea and then commercialize it. It's, it's a long and complex process in most cases. What we see Edison doing is being very successful over the course of his 62-year career in creating over a 1,000 patents and six industries in less than 35 years. So that's tremendously prolific. That's uh, Wayne Huizenga in our lifetime has created three <laughs> Fortune 500 companies, which no one has ever done before. So imagine that you could create six industries. Wow. That's really the level of accomplishment that we're talking about when we speak of Thomas Edison. So uh, part of my goal is to open people's eyes to the contributions that Edison made, but also to help us understand, boy, how do you create 150 companies in your lifetime? How do you have thousands of employees, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S.? Uh, how do you how do you work with world changing people uh, in the world of science, in the world of uh, economics, in the world of politics, and um, and leave a legacy as Edison did? So these are some of the things that that fascinate me about uh, this incredible man and what we can learn from him. So Sarah, when you uh, began doing the research, what did you find? I mean, clearly he did start uh, all of these companies and industries, but did he have uh, the education to give give him that business skill, or was he just a born entrepreneur? Well, you know, that's a great question. One of the things that uh, stunned me about Edison's young life is that he was only in school for about 90 days. He was actually <laughs> homeschooled by his mother, who was a retired school teacher. Edison was the youngest of seven children, so most of his siblings had actually left the house by the time he was in his young life. So he was pretty much an only child uh, as such, treated by his parents that way. And it's wonderful because his mother, Nancy Edison, was a retired school teacher and recognized that he had a unique learning style. He was a kinesthetic learner, which means that he loved to take things apart and put them back together, and that's how he understood things. Not so much from reading not so much from listing, but from doing. So this is informative because Edison um, went out and learned business by doing it. So this is the entrepreneur. This is sort of the born entrepreneur in Edison. When he was 12 years old, he began earning money by selling newspapers on the Grand Trunk Railroad in the Detroit area where he lived. And he learned a lot about revenues and profits and loss in that process, and he also learned about how to create 
anticipation for the newspapers. He learned that if he telegraphed ahead to the next station and told people that he had newspapers with a certain type of information in it, people would clamor for the newspapers. And he would sell ten times more at each station than he normally would if he just showed up on the platform and stood there and hawked the newspapers. So, so he, he figured marketing. He figured right, marketing he, out. He early was on. a marketer. He was a master <laughs> marketer and learned this again at a very young age. So I would say that Thomas Edison, uh, starting when in his late teens and going for roughly 13 years, was a small business person. He was an entrepreneur. Um, it was not really until he began the Menlo Park Laboratory, designed it and built it in 1876. I think that's when we can say that he entered the world of uh, of business and, and large enterprise. He invented the phonograph in 1877 and the incandescent electric light in 1879, and those put him on the world map. So he really he really cut his teeth as an entrepreneur and learned about business by doing it. So, Sarah, was there much written about the people around him, you know, the people that supported him and helped him grow, or, or was the focus of the historians just on his life? Because, you know, I mean, I know from my, my experience and my fairly recent experience in, you know, starting a company and, and, you know, having the spark of an idea, but to watch what happens in the innovation process with that spark going to other people and other people adding to the idea. And, you know, whoever's name gets written on the patent, you know, isn't always uh, representative of the collective uh, group that actually, you know, fostered that innovation. Right, that's true. And in Edison's time, only two people could appear on a patent. Otherwise, the so patent was open for Isn't that true today? No. Today, no. wow, dozens of people can appear on patents. Oh. And so it has. the law has changed. I think what's important for us to understand about Edison and his success is that he was a very collaborative person. He had dozens of people around him working on teams, um, assisting with basic research, assisting with applied research, assisting with commercialization processes, and more. A lot of times we have this notion of Edison sort of working by himself. Right. And in fact, that's not true. Uh, most of our myths about American inventors are that they're, you know, the lone genius in their garage working until all hours of the day and night, yes, for on their idea. But in fact, Edison collaborated from the very earliest days of his experience. He particularly collaborated with people who could help him prototype his ideas people who were woodworkers, people who were brass fitters, people who had capabilities with um, machining. So he sought these people out, and in fact, many of them found him as well. So this is where we actually see Edison becoming collaborative, uh, even in his uh, early 20s. So this approach of collaboration existed throughout his career. And uh, in fact, my next book, Collaborate Like Edison, uh, is focusing on Edison's collaborative methods. It's a, certainly something that we can draw upon today in our very fast-moving world. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because, again, I know that, uh, you know, in working with teams, actually 
getting that collaboration to work and and to be able to have everyone throw out both you know the good ideas and the bad and and to be able to work through them and and not have people's feelings get hurt um you know i mean that's the very real and practical part of innovation and in fact invention when you're when you're inventing new technology or new capabilities Most so what's definitely. the process you're going through to um to write that book uh are you having to do additional research or did you just have so much material from the first one you're able to just frame it differently well when i was researching innovate like edison i did have a lot of material that just wouldn't fit in that first book and and some of that related to collaboration however i am doing additional research on this subject because after traveling uh, throughout the U.S. And, and overseas to speak about Edison and do training sessions and so on, I, cer- I see the gap that exists in the business world today on this subject. So there's more that I'm researching about uh, what I call Edison's seven truths of collaboration success. I have found in, in all the research I've done so far that there are seven pieces that were particularly important for Edison as he put these teams together. Um, these relate to the size of the team in its early stage. These relate to the mix of skill sets on the team. It relates to the level of inspiration that's coming from one or more of the members of the team and several other components. But yes, I am doing additional research and, and drawing in what has been written about collaboration, much of which comes from the world of business and human resources. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going back and forth between the speaker and my car so that my husband can hear you. And uh, so, when when are you planning on on uh, publishing that book? Well, it will likely come out sometime next year. That's still under discussion. But um, one thing I'm really excited about is that collaboration is a challenge that's faced by large organizations, small organizations, public sector companies, private sector companies, the nonprofit world. So with the types of communication vehicles that we have now, collaboration is much more possible uh, even in the time when I launched the book in 2007, we think now about social media. We think right. about all the cellular technologies and download capabilities uh, that are available. We think about the notion of virtual teams being almost the norm versus exactly. you know face-to-face teams. So I think these things color how collaboration works. And um, nonetheless, I believe that if Edison were alive today, if if he were here in our 21st century world, um, he would he would be collaborating virtually. He wouldn't right. insist that everybody was an employee of his, which is of course how it worked when he was uh, alive in the late 1800s, right. early 1900s. But um, I think there's a great deal of applicability that um, that we can draw into the virtual world. Well, it's interesting because. Uh, Rebecca and I, uh, you know, had had gone through this venture. We had a number of other people, of course, on our team, and and we built uh, really what I I still consider game changing technology. And we're still waiting for our patent. But 
um, the business happened to not be a commercial success. In fact, uh, I, I refer to it as our spectacular failure because it failed <laughs> on so many different levels. But, y- you know, we learned so much from that failure. And, you know, I know that when we take a look at, at innovation and we look at inventors and we see all the inventions that they have, that invariably there's also that story of failure. And and did you focus in on that at all as you looked at, at Edison? Well, one of the stories that is included in Innovate Like Edison deals with this notion of failure. And it actually is hugely important, I believe, for all of us in business today because this failure uh, completely changed how Edison proceeded with his innovation process. When he began in his early 20s, much of what he did was to take ideas that he had floating in his head Mm -hmm. and create them, invent them, get a patent for them. And in fact, in 1869, he got his first patent which was for the electronic vote recorder. This was developed for the Massachusetts legislature. It was a a small uh, mechanical item that worked perfectly, allowed the legislators to input their name and then input their vote uh, for the bill that was being discussed. It worked very well to tabulate everything accurately. But the challenge was none of the legislators liked it. There was not a problem with voting quickly or accurately. Uh, and they really didn't like the notion of using something mechanical to assist them because it did not allow them to talk with their colleagues in a sufficient manner. So what Edison realized was that he had invented based on an idea. He had not innovated based on needs. He had not gone and studied how the legislature operated or even talked to any of the legislatures. And that never so, happens today. Yeah, so, so I think this is one of the, the prime points that I, I make when I speak to audiences is that, hey, you know what? It's great to have wonderful ideas. And no one's saying not to have them. But focus the ideas around needs and, and learn within your organization to capture the needs of the target audiences that you're uh, aiming for with your business. Go out. Watch people in action. This was one of the things that Edison later then began doing, is watch people at work, watch people in their homes. Uh, When Edison was making the transition to uh, central power and and determining, well, how will people behave differently if they're not using whale oil and lanterns and if instead they're pushing a button or flipping a switch somewhere in their house that turns the lights on? What will change in their behavior set? So what he did was to actually go and watch people in their daily lives. He taught several teams of people to do this as well. Um, And today we would call this ethnographic research. Right. I was trying to recall that word. Yes. it's, it's It's a really interesting area of market research and product development today. Um, and again, one has benefited greatly from the use of, say, video, right? Being able to actually video a sequence of how someone is doing something, and then aggregating those uh, and drawing statistical significance using software methods of various types. So we can look to Edison as someone who wanted to understand needs, saw gaps in the marketplace, and was able to envision 
what he could do to fill those gaps. So it isn't all just about having ideas. It's about creating connection between the needs of an audience and what you can deliver for them. Well, we have a, a very real challenge in front of us because uh, in in uh, less than two weeks, uh, we have a team of people going to Las Vegas and it's preceding a, an industry conference that uh, that we participate in. And we have decided to pull together members of the industry that, that we're a part of, which is the travel industry, the mapping and navigation and the location-based services, content industry, GPS, um, just a, a lot of different kinds of people. And we are, are applying their collective wisdom to a problem. And, you know, it's the problem that we tried to solve when we raised money and, and built our product uh, four or five years ago. But uh, would would love to take a look at, at your collaboration. And, again, I'm not at a place uh, right now where I can write them down, but to look at those seven premises of collaboration and to share them with the group because we're, we're doing a think tank all day on, on the 29th. And, uh, you know, just trying to get all of these different people to surface their own perspective of a challenge, and, and the challenge that we're addressing is we've got an, uh, an entire industry that is focused on people who travel by air, and yes. for the last 30 years, that's been really highly profitable, but 85% of people travel by car, and no one uh, effectively addresses end-to-end uh, -end helping uh, do journey planning. So um, hopefully we'll have some great stories to share with you for uh, for your your book on collaboration. Yeah, terrific. Well, I'd I'd love to hear how that all comes forward for you. Um, one thought that I would offer, and I don't know exactly how many people you will have in your session, but is to um, engage the group in small groups. So right. that at some point, of course, you can have everybody uh, weighing in on a, a given uh, item. But if you've got something happening all day, then you know putting people in groups of three to eight people was very effective for Edison, particularly at the front end of an issue, which is what you're talking about here, is how can we um, mastermind this? How can yeah. we envision a successful service? that includes X capabilities, yes? And so if, if you have teams of three to eight people, uh, management science today tells us what Edison knew in the 1880s, and, that, and that's that, that that small, nimble structure is terrific for troubleshooting at the front end, which saves you time and money in the, in the right. middle of the process and the back end of the process. Well, that's precisely how we're planning on, on running it because we knew that we needed to have uh, folks who were facilitating those discussions, and we've got just a great team of people from a, a lot of different uh, backgrounds coming in to do that facilitation. So uh, it's encouraging to know that we're on the right track. <laughs> Edison would give you the thumbs up. <laughs> Well, Sarah, I so appreciate you being with us today. Is uh, is there anything else that you would just leave uh, for us as, as words of wisdom as, as we try to take the way that we've always done things, the status quo, which seems to just grip us? And I, I think we're at a particular place 
in business today where particularly through these difficult financial times, people have had to cut back and cut back and cut back. And, you know, innovation, unfortunately, is is kind of the first thing to go. We've seen this throughout our industry. People are just, you know, kind of hunkering down and just getting the basics done, and and they're not even worrying about the future, and it's it's so short-sighted. Yes. I guess my my thought would be in closing that all of us have the capability of thinking like innovators. Edison believed profoundly in the power of the individual to create change and to be advocates for change. So even in an environment where you have cost reductions, layoffs, budget cuts, it's still possible for individuals to be operative and active. In Innovate Like Edison, the the focus that I've taken is what I call Edison's five competencies of innovation. And one thing that each individual can do, and I found this to be personally the biggest step change for me as an individual, is to keep a notebook. Keep a notebook where you actually a flow of ideas, things that come to you over the course of a day, and insights. This is where the right brain meets the left brain, when you are putting information into a notebook. It's one of the fastest ways to ramp up your thinking and to improve the neural network in your own uh, gray matter. So I would simply say, you know, don't lose hope. Start keeping a notebook. Start seeing what the patterns are in your ideas. Begin networking with others and uh, comparing your ideas, and um, you can start your way to innovation success. Oh, terrific. Uh, let me just see. Hang on. One. Back on my my handset here. Does anybody have any, any comments or any questions for Sarah? Rebecca, do you need any insights to uh, make our, our session more effective? No, I'm just trying to figure out a way to get her to come with us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wish we could do that. (laughs) We should have thought of that ahead of time. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe you can do a follow-up Skype session with uh, some of the people that you felt had good ideas. Well, or do you have any? Do you have any YouTube vignettes that you've done of talking about innovation? Yes, there's a YouTube video that's posted. Um, you can search on my name, Sarah Miller Caldecott, and uh, it should it should pop up. It's about five minutes long, four and a half, five minutes long. Uh-huh. It shows some of the work that I do in the arena of innovation, both as a speaker and as a trainer. Okay, so well, that maybe, might also uh, maybe I will take a look at that, and, and uh, if I have your permission, may use may use some pieces of that. Just as, as For your a, a framework, yeah, yes. Well, absolutely. If you if you think that there's something in there that's relevant to your business challenge, then um, have a look. Okay. All right, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, just keep me posted on on the schedule. I know uh, book publishing isn't an exact science, and yes, and timelines can. <laughs> But do keep me posted. I would love to read it. Sounds great. And thanks so much for the opportunity to be with you today, and good luck with uh, your meeting in Las Vegas. I will let you know how it goes. All right. 
All right. Take care, Sarah. Thank you so Thanks. much. And Bye. we are going to turn off the recording because what's on what's